won't be in Acts tonight. And uh, we continue uh, work with uh, the beginning of a movement which we're kind of dealing with all this year, uh, the school year equivalent. And uh, tonight we're going to uh, talk about Paul taking on the world because you come to a little bit different thing, uh, a little bit different direction of Paul's ministry here in um, the book of Acts in the 17th chapter uh, when Paul ends up going to Athens. It's a passage I think is oftentimes misunderstood, probably taught and preached, maybe not as carefully as it should be, and uh, maybe there's some subtleties that are missed that might be helpful to understand. So let me just kind of begin this way. I'm going to begin actually in verse 13. When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Paul had been run out of Thessalonica, and then them, them folks just came right on into Berea. They're running out of there too. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Silas and Timothy remained in Berea, but the believers sent Paul away. I mean, they sent Paul, you got to leave. Now, those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible they left. So they took him to Athens. Paul said, y'all leave. And as soon as you can, you get Timothy and Silas to come over here. So we're fixing to see uh, what is written about very briefly, the, the ministry of Paul in Athens. You'd probably be helpful to understand that in the overall scheme of things, it's very doubtful that Paul ever intended to go to Athens. Athens just wasn't that important of a city anymore. It had been in one time. Rome was the, was the power, it was the Roman Empire. Corinth was an important city, Ephesus, Philippi. Athens wasn't even the, the capital of its province, Achaia, that was, that was Corinth. Where, where Athens had its influence, though, was still in the culture. It basked in the days of the great philosophers of the 4th and 3rd and 5th, 3rd and 4th century. You know, Socrates was followed by Plato, then followed by Aristotle. Aristotle had some influence to some degree over Alexander the Great. I mean, that's where it was. And, and, and the Romans had such high esteem for the Greek culture and for the democracy or their, you know, the beginnings of democracy as they kind of understood it, that basically the, the Athenian people were left alone, just don't cause trouble and you're fine. But as far as having any economic or political influence, they just didn't have any. What they had was cultural. And... Uh, it was a place of a lot of great thinking, a lot of great movements, and a lot of things like that. So Paul was there, and he was just left alone for a while. And this is what we read in Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of olives. So the spirit of Paul that was there, that, you know, his personal self, he was provoked, he was agitated. He was frustrated because everywhere he went, he saw all these idols, all the philosophies, all the religious institutions, all these idols everywhere, all these temples everywhere. So, verse 17 tells us, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. That was his normal, Gentiles, that was his normal thing to do. He would go to the synagogue, there were Jews there, there were Gentiles who were God-fearers, theirs were the most likely people to convert. And he also went in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. He just went out into the streets in the marketplace, the Agora, where the market was. Um, next to it would you know, be some of the great temples. Uh, the Acropolis, I think, was, it was one of them that you would look over. Uh, and, and so there was all this discussion. You'd go into the marketplace to do business. If you come from a small town, uh, maybe if you go to a, from a county seat, back where they used to go to the county seat, and they would uh, sit around the town square, 
some of you came from that world and maybe, just, you know, they were talking to business in the old, old days. Mommy, most of you probably aren't old enough to do that, even some of you that are older. But they had, they go down there. Or some of you today, you go to discuss things at Whataburger every so often in the morning. I see people at Whataburger. I see people at Rudy's. Men mostly just talking, gossiping, all that sort of stuff. That's where you went. And in verse 13, it says this. 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, or Areopagus as some pronounce it, I Areopagus. And saying, may we know what his new teaching is and what you are proclaiming. And for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So I'm going to spend a few moments now just setting all this up and what we're going to talk about today. So Athens was the center of culture and learning and philosophy. It, it, it had hundreds of years of this. They've been doing this longer than our country has been a nation. And that was their tradition, and that was what they would do. And they would gather uh, at the Areopagus, and this was a place where they would exchange the ideas. It was high up on a hill. In the heyday of Athens, this was the place they ruled from. They no longer ruled. But in all their philosophies, and all their discussions, people would come here to gain a hearing, to gain an audience, to see the legitimacy of what they had to say. Now, what happens here with Paul is he's going to be invited to come and speak to this group of mostly men. We need to remember something about Paul we sometimes forget, and that is Paul is brilliant. Paul is as brilliant of a thinker, of a theologian, as a philosopher as has, there has been in the last 2,000 years. And Paul, from an influence standpoint, is every bit as influential as you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. He's that way because Western culture is influenced by Paul. And Paul's ability to reason, Paul's ability to, to exercise logic is, is second to none. And so his ability to defend and explain the Christian faith has never been challenged by anyone. He's just that brilliant of a guy. It would be safe to say that that day where Paul was, Paul was probably the smartest man in the room. Just, just probably, he's just that brilliant. So what you have here in coming to Athens is you have Paul standing up to speak with a group of people with diverse ideas. Now, there's two things at Athens you have to understand is going on. There is all the multiple religions that are worshipped. That's part of it. But there's also the philosophical discussions. In my world, the theological debates that go on. There's all these discussions that would go on and happen. Paul was invited to explain something. Two groups of people are missions. Stoics and Epicureans. The Stoics and Epicureans were two of the leading philosophies of that day. They go back to the mid-fourth to early third century B.C. to two guys who were born one year apart and died five years apart who ended up both in Athens teaching. One was a man named Zeno who was known as Zeno the Stoic because he would teach in front of the Stoa, the portico of where he taught. And the other was a man named Epicurus. Epicurus's philosophy, and those that followed him, was based on this idea that while there may be gods or goddesses, the idea of God, he's so far removed, you cannot know him. That God has basically no interaction with the world that exists. The God or the goddesses, especially the ruling idea of a supreme God. 
As a result of that, the chief means of the Epicurean philosophy was pleasure. Now, this is not in the sense of hedonism, but in the idea of the simple things. Enjoy life because it's short and you only have one life and there's certainly nothing beyond life. So live a simple life. Enjoy the things. Virtue is found in the simplicity of the life you lead. Zeno, the Stoic, who was the founder of Stoicism, had kind of an opposite philosophy. Not only did he believe in many gods that were around, but the overarching idea of God, the divine ruling principle of the world, of creation, existed in every person. He was a pantheist. God is found everywhere. Pantheist. God is in all things, all created things. As a result, God reveals himself, or the deities reveal themselves, and I use God in the singular, but there's many gods and goddesses. But God reveals himself, the creating principle or force reveals himself, and as such we can know something about him, and therefore it is incumbent upon us to live very moral lives, very disciplined lives, in light of what is revealed. So you have these two competing philosophies. Sometimes you may, I come across this quite a bit, but you may read at some point that Paul was influenced by Stoicism, which is really not true. Paul, people talk about Paul's teaching had a lot in common with Stoicism. It actually had very little common with Stoicism, but there were certain things, the idea of discipline, the idea of a revelation, the idea of adhering your life to moral, morally to the revelation you're giving. That's not the, that's, those are touch points that are similar. However, they understand that revelation was far different. I tell you these things because here are these two philosophies. Paul, the speech Paul is going to give is couched in such terminology as to deal with two competing philosophies at the same time. Now, in the minute we're going to come to the speech of Paul, it's very short, what we have. You can read it in about two minutes. Most likely, Paul spoke much longer. Wherever Luke got his sources from, Luke condensed this down. Paul was always long-winded. Later on, we'll read that Paul preached so long that, it, that you know, Eutychus fell from the, from the window down and broke his neck or whatever, and Paul had to bring him back to life. I mean, Paul could ramble on and on and on. So, you know, that's, Paul didn't do anything short. The interesting thing, as it says here, is that he began teaching, and they were curious about a new teaching, a strange teaching. They called him an idle babbler. Because in verse 18, it says, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the word resurrection in the Greek, and Paul would, would have spoken it in Greek, is the word anastasis. And the word anastasis, or anastasia, sounds very much like a Greek deity. And so they were thinking that he was talking about this deity Jesus, or this demigod Jesus, and this deity Anastasia, who in many ways sounded like a female consort. And so the things that Paul was teaching that were normative to a Jewish and a God-fearing group, and even in the marketplace to Greeks, was strange. Now, so they invited Paul to come and speak to the entire group. And so, verse 22, we see Paul coming to them. And he says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you were very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, the objects of your worship, not the people, not the God of your worship, the objects, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God, therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. This is a fascinating thing to understand it. First place, when you came before the Areopagus, the Areopagites, you, you, you didn't ever give false flattery. Some people say, well, Paul's just buttering them up. You didn't butter up these guys. You came 
straight truth. Paul makes several observations about them. You know, as I begin this part, let me just say this. One of the things that I hear sometimes, and you realize Paul is dealing with people with a completely fundamentally different view of the world, not just a different view of God. People have a different understanding of how the world operates. One of the things I hear sometimes as a Christian when we share our faith, we need to find things in common with people who aren't believers from a religious standpoint. And I hear that, you know, a lot. If we're going to reach Muslims, we've got to find points of, you know, religious points of common with him and, you know, and others. And, and I basically, I, I tend to reject that notion. I reject it because most people who believe different than we do don't have anything in common with us. They just don't from a religious standpoint. For me to find common ground oftentimes requires me to compromise truth to accommodate them. So let me give you an example. The other, uh, uh, last summer I was playing golf and I ended up playing golf with this guy who was uh, Mormon. Terry has played golf with this same cat. And, and uh, I don't know, how much money did he take you for, Terry? <laughs> Nothing? Okay. Just giving Terry a hard time. So Terry knows this. So, you know, so he just does, you know, you know, he finds out, you know, I'm a Baptist minister. And so, you know, that tends sometimes to shut off conversation or people won't talk. So he mentions something about the things we have in common. And, and I don't go, and I, listen, when I'm playing golf, I don't, I don't want to discuss Christ. I'm playing golf. If it's a business golf, then that's different. But if I'm just playing golf, I'm focused on my game and on controlling my temper. I'm trying to live like a follower of Christ. I don't have time to discuss Christ. But, uh, you know, it says, you know, we got a lot of things in common. And, and this is my standard kind of thing. Not really. I have nothing in common with Mormonism. Nothing. How people say, well, they believe in Jesus. No, they don't. They have a concept of the person Jesus. As I understand Jesus and as they understand Jesus, it's two fundamentally different things. I have nothing in common with that. I'm never going to concede that. Well, they believe in the Bible. No, they don't. Their authority is the Book of Mormon and the writings of Joseph Smith. It is not the revelation of God. I have nothing in common. Well, they live a moral life. Yes, they do. That's not a religious thing. That's just point of contact. I look for connecting points to people. How can I relate to someone? That's what I look for. How can I build a relationship with someone so that I might in some mean, shape, form, or fashion reach them for Jesus? I'm not looking for common ground because I'm not interested in conceding anything. And I don't want to get into a religious discussion. What I'm saying is Paul didn't come find common ground. Paul found a point of connecting. And in the point of connecting, what Paul had was a weakness in their philosophy that Paul could exploit and give them information they didn't have. He said, you're religious. That's not something they had in common. It was just a point of contact. Paul wasn't religious. He was a follower of Jesus from Judaism. Paul said, you have a lot of places of worship, a lot of objects. You even have an altar to the unknown God. Talk about this for a minute. Can I tell you the number of times I've heard people preach and teach from this and say, you know, those Greeks had so many gods and goddesses, they even had one for the ones they might have skipped. You ever heard a preacher say, they had a God altar to the unknown God in case they skipped the God, they didn't want to insult it. Well, the Greeks didn't think that way. The altar to the unknown God 
was an altar to the deity that they did not yet comprehend or understand or who did not reveal himself to them. To the Epicurean, it was the deity so far removed that he was unknowable. So out of a concession, they might say, here's an altar. Odds are, they didn't even worship him. To the Stoic, it would be the ruling divine principle that existed that somehow that particular deity never revealed himself into a way that they could know him. So to make sure that we recognize you, whoever you are, you're the unknowable God. They have an altar to the unknowable God. So what does Paul say? Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, you don't know. This I proclaim to you, because I know. Here's what he says. By the way, he never quotes the Old Testament. You know why he never quotes the Old Testament? They didn't believe in the Old Testament. They didn't care. They didn't care a leg. Now, when, he, when he's preaching to Jews and God-fearers, he quotes the Old Testament, which he called the Scriptures. He didn't call it the Old Testament all the time. They, they all understood that. To these guys, it made no difference. What you need to see is that the strategy Paul used for the Athenians is different than what he would have used a few verses earlier in the synagogue to the Jews and the, and the God-fears. When I, so a few months ago, I, I, I brought the chapel service to the NMSU football team. Um, and I, David Englehart asked me to do it, and I did it. He says, you got 15 minutes. How I dealt with them is fundamentally different than how I would deal with another group. I had 15 minutes to guys who didn't know me. I was just David, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor. I tried to find connecting points. I had played football in the college. That was a connecting point. Now, they played Division One. I. I played Division Three. I recognize there's a distance, but it's a connecting point. I'm not going to connect much with them. Some of those kids were recruited out of Texas. So I taught you, hey, I'm from Texas. There's a connecting point. Got me closer to some of them. I had officiated football in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and the San Antonio area. That connected some of them. The quarterback of the team is from San Antonio area. His head football coach at high school, I played against in high school and college. I mentioned that. That made me a whole lot closer to him. There was no way I was going to connect with all of them. I tried to connect with as many as I could in a 15-minute time. When I delivered what I had to say, I talked about hope. And I talked about hope on an emotional level. that it, on, on this level deep inside you. That when you're playing a game, that some, you always have hope you're going to win. But sometime, at some point in the game, one of the sides comes to the conclusion. It could be early in the game. could be in the last play of the game. That there is no hope to win. And I talked about the emotion of not having hope and the helplessness. Then I talked about that in their life. And then I said, if you ever get to that point, Jesus gives you hope. And my 15 minutes was up. Had I gone for some reason to speak to the faculty at NMSU? Any of you guys faculty at NMSU? Okay. They don't go to church. That's what I thought. So, not on Wednesday. You're, for, you're, you're adjunct. You're not really considered faculty. You're the guy they pay on the side to teach stuff they don't want to teach. <laughs> Bobby, same thing. So I would have dressed differently. I'd have been introduced as Dr. Burroughs. And I wouldn't have preached on an emotional level. I'd have talked to them on an intellectual and logical level. 
I would have talked about hope. I would have talked about something that would connect to them. I probably would have talked about authenticity or authority. The authenticity of life. And I would have had reasoning and I would have had analysis. I would have had things outside of scripture. I would have brought some scripture in, but I would have been very deliberate in how I did it. If I was to invite it, and I never get invited to do this because, it, because of a variety of reasons, to go speak to a group of preachers. Then I'm coming as, as you know, guy with this degree and that degree and that degree and 40 years of experience. And I'm going to talk to them about the fact that we need to change the culture in which our churches, our churches in order to reach people. I'm going to talk to them about how do you reach more people because you're doing a lousy job. That's why I never get invited. I don't deal with groups the same way. Paul doesn't do that. You have to learn to do that. Your neighbor next door to you who is not a believer, and some, some of y'all come up, some of you have, you know, you have atheists, some of you have Jewish, you taught me different people. You can't connect to them if your neighbor grew up in a, in a preacher's home and just kind of strayed away from church a little bit. So notice what Paul says. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He said, you all believe in, there's a God out there. Even you Epicureans, you just don't know him. But he's not in temples. And the Epicureans would say, of course he's not in temples. We don't know him at all. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So he's talking about creation. He never mentions creation. The God who created. Notice, notice what he goes on to talk about. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their inhabitation. God is the God who creates, the God who's in control. The stoics will say, well, yeah, absolutely. I get you now, Paul. I'm feeling you. This is a summation of a much longer message. The Epicureans, of course you can't find him in the temple. That's obvious. The stoics, well, yeah. Of course he's in control of everything. That... Verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Now, the Stoics would love that part. Epicureans, what do you mean he's not far from each one of us? Well, he's not far from us. The Stoics would say, yeah, Paul, keep doing it. For in him, notice, in him we live and move and exist. They taught, some of them, that God is in each of us. And that he works and lives and exists in us. And Paul said, no, 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 not so fast, my friend. We are in him. We live and move and exist. For some of your own poets. And he quotes some of their poets that said, for we are also his children. So notice, he's even quoting some of their, their pagan. You know, sometimes we catch flack. And I catch, you know, if, if I use illustrations from something that's not in the Bible or not a Christian. I don't get it much here. Sometimes, you know, I'll make a cultural reference. I'll reference a movie. I'll reference a piece of music once in a while. I don't get it much. Since I've been here, I don't get it. Part because some of you simply can't catch the cultural reference and you don't know what it is. So that's part of it. (laughs) But I've caught in flack from that before. So what's wrong with an illustration from life? And some of it makes really good sense. Now, not everybody who's not a follower of Christ is wrong about everything all the time. Sometimes they have pretty good things to say. So he quotes one of their their poets. Notice what he says. Being then children of God, verse 29 is key. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver, an image formed by the art and thought of man. The divine nature, the ruling principle. Didn't talk about God. Talk about divine nature. 
Can't capture him in gold. Can't capture him in silver. You can't capture God at all. See, the God they didn't know, Paul was revealing who that God is to them. You don't know him because you keep trying to capture him in temples. You keep trying to capture him in idols and things that you can't capture God. It is God who captures you. It was the fault. It was, it was the point of, of departure. See, Paul didn't have nothing in common, but there was a connecting point. They had a God they didn't know. Paul says, I know the God. I'm telling you about that God. Paul is the authority about that God. They're not. Paul is. And he's telling them about that God and what he's like. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now at this point declaring to all men that people everywhere should repent. Well, that's, that is a classic non-Greek thought. You didn't repent because you didn't sin. You may have done evil. You overcome the you didn't sin against the gods. So Paul brings the classic Christian message. He talks about creation, God moving in us, and now he's talking about repentance. The classic Christian message. Never mentions God, never mentions Jesus, never quotes scripture. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in his righteousness, in righteousness, but it's his righteousness, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See, the whole issue was with the resurrection. Now, at some point in all that, we can assume in the larger sphere that he talked about Jesus. So what did Paul do? He started talking about this unknown God, the God who created things. He talks about this divine principle that does not, does not be affected by you, but you're affected by him. And then he moves to begin talking about him revealing himself in this man who will one day judge you, who God raised from the dead. And eventually Paul got to two key themes of the Christian faith, repentance and resurrection, which are inseparable. Now here's what it says. Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, dead, some began to sneer. Oh, later in Acts, when he's on trial towards both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Paul outwits them all because he knows deep down they can't stand each other, he just talks about the resurrection of the dead. And first he says, what's wrong with that? We believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees says, we don't. They're fighting among themselves. Paul walks away. The resurrection of Jesus is the stumping block to people who are not followers of Christ. That is the stumbling block. Remove resurrection from the Christian faith. Christianity is no longer offensive to most people. Because Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If there is no resurrection, there is no problem. And that's how they look at it. So they begin sneering and jeering. Where'd I go? Huh. But others said, we'd like to hear you again concerning this. There's an interest. So Paul went out of their midst. Now we don't know if Paul went back. Here's what Luke tells us. But some men joined him and believed. 
Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite. He was one of those guys. And a woman named Damaris and others. I hear people sometimes say, and I, I, you know, I just don't get some people when they read the New Testament, they get so caught up in trying to overanalyze everything that they just don't get it. I hear people say, well, Paul was a miserable, Paul failed at Athens. Some have said he was a miserable failure. It was just not success. It was Paul never planned, planned to go to Athens. The, the people at Berea said, Paul, you got to leave, man. You got you to go. They took him, they dumped Paul in Athens. And what's Paul, what's Paul supposed to do? He's just a preacher. He's a brilliant preacher. He does what Paul does. He gets everybody all riled up. They've just driven him out of three towns. I mean, read the, read the chapter before that. They drove him out of everywhere he went. He ticked off more people than me and Barry combined, man. <laughs> and they ran him out. And so he's in Athens. What do you think's going to happen? They're going to run him out. He didn't start a church. Didn't try to start a church. But one of the area pagites got saved. And a woman got saved. And others got saved. How in the world was he unsuccessful? Sounds like a good success story to me. If you go to amidst a bunch of pagans and atheists and agnostics and people who have no connection with Christianity. And a half a dozen of them get saved. That's a pretty good day. But he wouldn't have been able under the power of the Holy Spirit to pull that off if Paul hadn't adjusted his message. He still preached the gospel, all right? He didn't compromise his message. He adjusted the way he delivered it. Preach God created. Preach repentance. Preach resurrection. Preach judgment. That's a good Baptist message. That's four Baptist messages right there. Or one long one at a revival. Okay. Which is why we don't do revivals, because I can, can't, can't deal with a one and a half hour message on five different subjects. And one of the things we have to learn and get as churches and believers is we take and we never, ever change the message and we never change the mission and we never change the Messiah. But we change the methods in which we preach Jesus. Because if we don't, we won't reach people who don't have a clue. Our job is to connect to people. So in Bridgeport, our vision and our purpose was to reach people for Jesus Christ and connect them to a local body of believers. To connect, connect, connect. What do we talk about all the time here? Connecting, connecting, connecting. Connect people with Jesus. Jesus will change their lives. But you can't put new wine into old wine skin. As a Baptist, we can't put wine into wine skin anyway. Some of you just buy it by the box and pretend we don't know you have it. Can't sew an old new patch on an old garment. And you can't 
use old methods to reach a new generation? Questions or comments? Speak now. Forever hold your peace. Okay, well, we're done. We'll see y'all Sunday.